on these subjects and to think biblically. Help us not just in our understanding of your word, but in the application of it to glorify you in all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Good morning, y'all. We're continuing our study through the book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands by Paul David Tripp. And today we're going to be talking about chapter 7, Building Relationships by Entering Their World. So he starts the chapter talking about how he used to be a, a professor of biblical counseling at a seminary. And he knew that for the first time he taught it, that a lot of these guys saw uh, this class as just something that was just in their way of being able to go do what they really want to do, which is preach God's word, um, which I can, I can relate to that. I'll, I'll be honest with you that when I first started in seminary, that, uh, that my thoughts were that I would just kind of be like the teacher guy, right? And then all that other messy stuff, the counseling stuff, that other people can do that. Uh, and so I think a lot of guys go into seminary in that way. So the first semester that he taught it was kind of just meh. And so the second time, what he did was he really brought these subjects to life by starting out giving the most horrific horror stories of pastoral ministry, because Paul David Tripp was him, is himself a pastor, or at least was. I'm not sure if he still is. But he, um, here you go. He, so this time he gave all these horror stories, and you could tell it was different. The guys were tensing up, and one of the students said, okay, all right, we get it. We get it but just tell us what to do about these projects so we can get back to real ministry. And so he then kind of challenged him on that. I said, what was that word that you used again? And he said, projects. So this guy who wanted to be a pastor in seminary kind of, kind of viewed the issues that the sheep have as something that's just in the way, projects that need to be completed before you can get back to the real work of ministry, which is preaching the word of God. Uh, and, and we might have that tendency as well. Like, we want to do church. We want to come here. We want to be fed. We want to give. We want to just do our thing, but not have to mess with the issues that everybody else in our church has. But the reality is that is a church is, is like a hospital. Church is like a hospital. There are spiritual sicknesses that everybody has in this hospital. And if we ask the question, let me just ask you this. What percentage of our hospital... First Baptist Hospital of the Lakes, what percentage of our hospital are patients? 100%. We're all patients, right? What percentage of our hospital, I'm talking about the believers here, what percentage of our hospital are staff? Another 100%. So we're a unique hospital in that way. Everyone there is a patient and everyone there works there as a staff, right? So that's kind of like our spiritual hospital. And why do you think that God designed church to be this way? Everyone is needing help and everyone is helping each other. Why do you think God designed it to be that way? Daniel, uh, to, to humble us, right? So none of us is like uh, against what um, sinless perfectionists say. None of us reach the level where we no longer have any kind of um, thing that we're working through, right? So it humbles us. What else? Why else? Did God design it, do you think, that everybody needs help and we all need to help each other? Because we're being selfish. Amen. Now, to keep us from being selfish so that we, we have to help each other out and things like that. 
It's one of the ways that God sanctifies us in these relationships. Yes, ma'am. Hannah. Yeah, it humbles us in, the, in another way where we need to ask for help. We need to be served. So if you're the kind of uh, Christian at church who doesn't ever reveal the difficulties that you're going through spiritually, then that's, it's A, pride, and B, you're not going to get the help that you need. Yeah. Amen. Victor says oh, to keep our eyes on the great physician, which is, which, who is Christ. Andrew. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good. So it keeps us in the pilgrim mindset. It reminds us, hey, we need, we're moving toward something else. This is not our home. We're on a journey towards the new heaven and the new earth, and we, we need to help each other on the way. Very good. So sometimes we might feel like people are actually in the way of our plans. Uh, we, we have things that we want to do. We want things we want to accomplish, and people are just kind of in the way of us. And so we have to be watchful of that, which leads us to our first topic on this handout, which if you need one, good morning, they're in the very back rows on each side if you need a handout. And the first, the first idea that we're talking about is foundational love. Foundational love. He makes his claim that the foundation for personal ministry, which is just, again, what we're all called to do for each other, the foundation for personal ministry is not sound theology, as critical as sound theology is, but the foundation for personal ministry is actually love, right? So think about God's ministry to us. What does God's love have to do with what he has done for us? He sacrificed himself, his son, for the soul out unto death for us, um, saving us from the greater wrath of God. That is love. Amen. Amen. So he gave his only son to sacrifice himself for us. And, and the basis of that was not anything but love. Well, I'm not going to say anything. Okay. So did God give us his only son for his own glory? Yes. But John 3.16 doesn't specifically say that. Instead, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And so in being his image bearers and being his ambassadors, like we talked about last week, any ministry that we do for each other needs to be rooted in that same kind of love. And as we think through God's love for us, that's the kind of love we should have for each other. So let's describe that. Let's brainstorm that. What is God's love like according to the Bible? Yeah, Marty. It's a jealous love. So he is not satisfied with our loving him as well as a hundred other gods and idols. And we also should be jealous in that way, protecting God's glory for each other. Yeah. A steadfast love, a love that never dies. And yeah, an unconditional love. Amen. What's one more? These are all good answers. What's God's love like? Unconditional, steadfast. Yeah, Raymond. It endures forever. Okay, I'll give you one more. Yeah. It's sacrificial. Good. So as you think about all those things, uh, our love should be jealous for each other. In other words, we should love each other so much that we shouldn't be satisfied with our brothers and sisters being stuck in sin. It should be steadfast, no matter how difficult that relationship gets. It should be unconditional, meaning I, we love our brothers and sisters despite the sin that they may do against us. Uh, it endures forever. And then, Victor, what was the thing you just said? Sacrificial. It's sacrificial. 
that were willing to say, hey, this is inconvenient for me to come over to your house at 11 o'clock, but, it's, but I can tell you need it, so I'm going to go and help you, right? So the way that God loves us, we should love each other. Let's take a look at Romans 8, 31 through 39. Romans 8, 31 through 39. Here is what God's love is like. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What shall, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in a, what would you say in a nutshell, what is Paul telling us here? Yeah, as he's, talk, he's showing us the depth and the width and the everlasting nature of God's love for us. Amen, amen. A good summary there, Lucretia. And so that, again, that's the kind of love that we should be having for each other as well. And also when you think about this, it's not just our love for each other, but we need to recognize Christ's love for us. That is the kind of love that offers hope to those who are willing to put, uh, put their sin to death and fight against their temptations every single day. The fact that Christ's love we can never be separated from is what offers such people hope. And we are recipients of that love. Having been recipients of that love, we should be willing to love others in the same way, even if it takes personal sacrifice, all right? We have a lot of motivation for us to lay down our lives for each other. If you're a Christian, if you... If you are here and you're a believer, it's because you have believed that Jesus Christ laid down his life for you. And in response to that, you want to lay down your life for other people. Let's take a look at what 1 Corinthians 13 says about love, that our love that we should have for each other. 1 Corinthians 13 is often quoted at weddings, and certainly it has applications to marriage. But the love that's being talked about in context is the love of the Corinthian Christians to each other. This is the kind of love they should have for each other. And here's what this whole chapter says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Let me just pause there real quick. So we have some, sometimes there are, there are good brothers and sisters, especially when they've just 
come to like reform theology and they just become some of the least charitable and kind and patient people. But if you have great theology and you don't have love, you're nothing. You have nothing, all right? So be watchful of that. You can have, you can have the ordo salutis down pat. You can be able to explain the, 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 the doctrines of grace like an expert. But if you don't have love for your brothers and sisters, it means nothing, all right? Verse three, if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So even if I'm a martyr and I don't have love, that's no gain to me. Well, what does love look like? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partials shall pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So again, having excellent theology is a good thing, but if it is devoid of love, well, actually I'd argue you don't have good theology. If you're not loving, you don't have good theology. You've memorized facts but you don't know God as you should, right? So again, if you, if, you do, if you have excellent theology without a willingness to apply that in love to others, then it doesn't mean anything. Our incarnation of Christ's love is really our only hope as well for ministering to others effectively. If we want to help people change, then it needs to be our incarnating Christ's love to other people. The risk of doing church without love is, again, what he's just explained here. We're just going to be noisy gongs Clanging symbols, being nothing and gaining nothing, essentially, is what he's saying. It's also impossible for us to join in Christ's work without being willing to lay down our lives for other people. Raise your hand if you want to join in Christ's work here on earth. Yeah, all Christians desire this. But the only way you're going to do that, or able to do that, is if you're willing to lay down your lives for other people. Let's take a look at Luke 14, verses 26 through 27. Luke 14, verses 26 through 27. Jesus, talking about the cost of discipleship, says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So let's... Eliminate first, what is Jesus not saying here? To hate, right? Well, I guess I have to hate my own father and mother if I'm going to be faithful. That's not, what, that's not what he's saying here. So what is he saying then if he's not saying you should hate your family? Amen. Yeah, you love him more. That's true. That's true. Yeah, to be willing to sacrifice anyone or anything for him. Now, again, um, 
we should love our family and we should, we should try to live at peace with them and we should try to share Jesus with them at every opportunity. But there are circumstances where you're, even your family members will cut you off because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. There are some countries where your family will kill you if you convert to Christianity, right? So what he's saying is you should be willing to give up even the closest people to you to follow Jesus Christ. Now, we tend to see people as obstacles to ministry rather than the recipients of it, and it's, that's what we're trying to fight against. People are not obstacles to ministry. People are ministry. You're ministering to people. And again, as we've been saying as a refrain, that's not just pastors. It's not just people who want to become counselors. It's not just deacons. This is a ministry of every single person in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, let's take a look at our next section, redemptive relationships. Redemptive relationships. One of the challenges that we face as Christians is that we consider our relationships as things that belong to us. My relationship with my wife is my relationship. My friendship with Lucretia, that's my friendship. It's mine. And what happens is then, if Lucretia crosses me, now she's just messed up the boundaries of my friendship with her and she's gone. That's what our tendency is, right? That, that wouldn't happen, sister. But this is what we're talking about. When we think it's ours, then we have the right to do, whatever, do, what, do what we will with relationships. Uh, act in them however we want. Discard them however we want. But the relationships don't belong to us. Your relationships that God has given you belong to God. And God has purposes for them and we need to be careful not to be what Tripp calls relationship thieves. We're, we're stealing our relationships from God. Our relationships are primarily for glorifying God. That's what they're primarily for, is for glorifying God. God uses relationships that we have for his glory and for our good. So why do we need to be careful not to use relationships that belong to God for our own selfish purposes. Why do we need to be careful not to do that? Yeah, Eloise. We get in the way of what God wants to do. I mean, we know ultimately he'll accomplish his purposes, but certainly people can put themselves against God, and we don't want to do that. Yeah, we don't want to do, we don't want to get in the way of God's intentions for our relationships. Good point. What is, yeah, Daniel. Yeah, so it hurts ourselves and it hurts other people in our relationships. Very good point there as well. What is God's plan for our relationships? Yeah, Marty. To glorify him. To glorify him. Amen. Uh, what else? What is God doing in our relationships? Eloise. He's redeeming us and changing us. Yeah, through, through our relationships, he's redeeming us, he's changing us. Amen. What's one more thought on this? What's his goal for our relationships? Yeah. Sanctification, amen. So, uh, same idea here. Um, the sanctification is essentially talking about holification. He is making us more and more holy in this life, more and more like Christ in this life. And he does that in, in a large part in the relationships that we have. Lucretia. Uh, 
Yeah. Yeah, knowing how to love and serve one another. Sometimes we don't know how to do that. And you don't really learn until you're actually doing it and helping people out. Good. So God has plans for our relationships. And what we should do is simply join God in his plans for our relationships. Our relationships mirror God's loving and redemptive relationship with us. They're a mirror of that. Okay. So let's think through that a little bit. God's relationship with us, we can summarize this in justification, adoption, and sanctification. So let's, those are $5 words. Let's, uh, let's break them down in, into some change here. What is justification? Yeah, Daniel. Yeah, declared righteous. Good. Amen. So he took a sinner and made it so that they were declared righteous. And the way that he accomplished that was by his son living the life that we couldn't live. So obeying God's law perfectly and dying on the cross for sinners like us, taking our punishment on himself. And, in, and, and because he did that, all who believe in him are then given the credit for the life that he lived. And we're considered righteous. We're considered justified. And in the final courtroom, we're going to be declared not guilty. So that's justification. Adoption, what's that? Amen. So he took people who were his enemies and made them his children. That's adoption. And then sanctification, we talked about that in just a moment, but someone again, just briefly, what is sanctification? Being set apart for God's use. In one way, we've already been sanctified. We've already been set apart for God's use. And yet the Bible talks about this also as something that's being progressively done. He's making us more and more like his son. So we mirror God's relationship with us in our relationships with other people. Just like God came to us and, and laid down his life for us in Christ, uh, we are supposed to do that for other people. We go after people. We go after them. So that's the kind of like how we mirror justification. We share the gospel with them, to share the good news, just like Christ brought the gospel of the kingdom himself when he came. When it comes to adoption, we, we welcome people as family if they would trust in Jesus Christ. We have a desire to call people to put their trust in Jesus Christ that they too would be children of him, of his father. And then we mirror sanctification in our relationships by doing exactly what we're talking about. We speak the truth and love to each other. We help people put their idols to death, right? So again, we are simply joining him in his relationship with his own people. We can participate in that. And God is using our relationships again. He's using it for his glory and he's using it for our good. So your relationships with Christians, he's using that for your good. He's using that to shape you into the likeness of his son. He's using you in that relationship to help your brother or sister also become like Jesus Christ. He uses even your sinfulness towards other people to make them more like Jesus Christ because they have to forgive you for it. They have to forbear with you, right? They have to be patient with you. Our relationships with unbelievers, God is using those as well. Raise your hand if, if you are a Christian because of someone who loved you and shared the gospel with you. I mean, really, it should be everybody because that's ultimately what happened to, in everyone's life, is in everyone's new life, is that someone loved you to share the gospel with you, unless it was simply because you read through the Bible, 
Uh, but someone gave you that Bible, hopefully, right? So God is using our relationships for all of these things. Now, let's put this in application. If a married couple were to remember that God uses relationships for that purpose, okay, how will that impact the way that they interact with each other? Hopefully it would improve it, okay? Good. How would it improve it? They're being directed by God's way and not their own way. Amen. Being directed by God's way, not their own way. Marty. Yeah, yeah, you see, you see yourself as a servant, not the person who is to be served. Yeah, even Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he says that in the context of calling them to be each other's servants. Yeah. Amen. They'd see their own sin as well. They wouldn't have the uh, plank in the eye syndrome, right? They'd be able to take that out and then help their spouse. If you're, if you're married, again, we use marriage, but don't close your eyes, ears if you're not married, because this applies to any relationship that you have. But if you're married you're re- and you're both Christian, then you recognize that God is working in that relationship to make both of you more like Jesus Christ. That's the context of why you should forbear with your spouse, right? And not be selfish and not focus on yourself instead. If their goal is only their personal happiness, then it's going to create conflict. It's going to create friction because our, our spouses never satisfy us as much as we think that we deserve, right? So we, we can't be about our own, our own satisfaction. It needs to be about what God is doing in that relationship. And if they recognize God's redemptive purposes, that should give them hope as well. If they recognize, again, that, yes, my spouse is being terrible right now, not my spouse, she's great, But hypothetically, my spouse is being terrible right now, but I believe that God is making him or her into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's going to give him hope. That's going to give him hope to stick it out. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 um, very strongly says that God could even use the believing spouse to save the unbelieving spouse. That gives him hope. Peter says the same thing, that they may be one without a word, just by the love of the spouse. So that should give an unbelieving spouse hope as well, that God can use that relationship to save the unbelieving spouse. So when marital difficulties arise, there is good reason to believe that God is up up to something good. Same thing again, conflict in church. When there's a conflict in church, there's reason to believe that God is up to something good. So you should stick it out. You should wait on the Lord and what he's doing in the situation instead of just abandoning it. Thinking about this from other situations, not just marriage, God's goal for your parenting. So if you're a parent or if you want to be a parent one day, what is God's goal for your parenting? Train that child up in his way. Yeah. To show, them, show that child Yeah, to train Train that child in God's way, in his nurture and admonition. Train that child to look to Jesus Christ. Amen. And again, if, if, you're, if your goal for parenting is that your child would be like, uh, 
what's that word? Someone that you can live through vicariously and accomplish things that you couldn't accomplish in life, then you'll be disappointed a lot uh, because they're also not perfect themselves. But if your goal is simply, I'm going to point that child to Jesus Christ. With everything that I have, I'm going to do that. Then you'll be more forbearing with them. You'll be more kind with them. You're not going to have worldly expectations for them. And then what about counseling? We talk about counseling. Again, it can be something that's formal or it can just be someone's coming to you for help. What is God's goal for your counseling other people? Amen. To show them Christ, to encourage them, to, uh, as Hebrews says, spur one another on to love and good works, right? So that's, that's God's goal for your counseling as well. So all of the relationships that we have are, in that sense, redemptive. God is using those relationships for his redemptive purposes. And if we get on board with that, we're going to enjoy the relationships ourselves a lot more because we're not in it for ourselves. We're in it for God and for the other person, okay? So... What does a redemptive relationship look like? Well, we're going to answer that in the breaking down the love, know, speak, do that he breaks down in his book. Love, know, speak, do. And we're going to focus today on, on love. So take a look at that element of love number one. He's going to break down how you can love others well. And the first one is enter the person's world. Enter the person's world. What are some ideas that you have to turn a casual relationship into a life-changing one that we're talking about. How do you get past that um, shallow type of relationship? Yeah, Hannah. Yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah, so you just keep pushing through it because... I mean, some people are, people are different. There are some people who will tell you their whole life story and every darkest sin that they struggle with on day one. And there's others who are more guarded than that. And you just got to persevere for a long time sometimes. Marty. Amen. Good. Yeah. Amen. So bring up eternal things, things that will matter 10,000 years from now, right? The color of your tablecloth is not going to matter 10,000 years from now. But there, are, there are many things that we could be talking about that have eternal consequence. Good. Um, there's just spending time with people, showing them that you're trustworthy. There's a lot of things you can do to, to make it from a casual relationship to a life-changing one. Whatever the case may be, we need to, whenever, whenever someone is coming to us with a problem, we need to be person-focused rather than problem-focused. This is something that we have a tendency to, to do, or I'll just speak for myself. Someone presents a problem, and so I just start attacking the problem, right, without really focusing on what the person is actually saying, what they actually need. So we need to be focused on the person rather than just the problem. Um, if, you, if you try to focus on what the person is struggling with, then you can help them not just pull out the weed and a surface level, but to actually pull out the weed from the root level as well. So we have to try to get past what the problem is and focus on, uh, on the heart issue. Let, let's brainstorm that. What are some examples of circumstances 
that people might be going through? The outward stuff that's going on in life, what are some examples of that? Midlife crisis, what's another one? Yeah, someone just got fired or, or just laid off, they lost a job. Lost a family member. Mm -hmm. What else? Uh, yeah, a spouse is unfaithful. Mm -hmm. Debt, yeah, so they're, they're just getting deeper and deeper in debt. Marty? Yeah, good, relational issues, good. With, with the parents or someone else, yeah. A breakup, right on, right on. Good, okay, so these are the, the circumstances that people are going through, and if you just deal with the circumstances, then you're not gonna get to the heart of what is going on. So what are some examples of what heart issues that someone might be struggling with if they say lost their job? What are some of the heart issues they may have there? Fear. Fear, good. Anger. Anger, good, what else? Anxiety, Anxiety. absolutely. Hurt, right? Um, what about, let's pick another one. Um, uh, a spouse is, wasn't faithful to them. What are some of the th things that the, yeah, anger. What else? Devastation. Devastation. Distrust. Distrust. Betrayal. Betrayal, right. Jealousy, good. Good, uh, let's think of, let's do one more. What was one of the ones that y'all mentioned? Debt. Someone's in debt. What are some of the things that they, the heart issues that they may be struggling with? Anxiety, self-control, pride. Good, yeah, these are good answers. So you're getting the idea here. If you just deal with the outward circumstance, you're gonna miss the opportunity to deal with these heart struggles, these idols that they really need to work through as well. So God uh, gives us these entry gates that we can get into the heart, get into the person's world. Well, this brings us to our next Subpoint: recognizing entry gates, okay? Recognizing entry gates. We need to keep an ear out for, for ways that we can get to the heart of, of a situation. Listening for emotional words can be helpful. What's someone that something might tell you that is emotional? I feel what? What's an example? I feel I'm so angry that what? How could they do this to me, right? How could they, how could, I am so mad. I work so hard for this company. You know, that, that's like an emotional word. Um, I am just so bummed about blank, right? The emotional words can help you get to the heart of it. Uh, some other ones would be like interpretive words. You gotta listen for those as well. Um, here's an example. I can't believe this is happening. So they have an interpretation of the circumstances. They just don't think that it should be happening and they can't believe it. I really deserve this or I don't deserve this. Those are, these are things that um, they're interpreting their situation. I don't deserve this, right? Um, God talk is something you should listen to as well. How could, I just don't see how God could let this happen to me. God doesn't answer my prayers. God doesn't answer my prayers. He's just not listening, right? You gotta listen for that. Now, the way that you respond is gonna be important as well. How does it feel when you say something emotional or say something like that and they respond to you with scolding. Well, you shouldn't think that way. Hannah, you shouldn't think that way. The Bible says don't think that way, right? How does that feel? It feels shameful. Yeah, right. I don't want to talk to you anymore. If you're going to talk to me. 
<laughs> yeah, right? I'm not, I'm not going to talk to that person again because you're just shaming me, right? And don't get me wrong. Incorrect thinking needs to be corrected. But there's a way to go about it that's going to be helpful and godly, right? Because God doesn't just always just smack us on the head when we do something wrong. I'd just be falling down all over the, all over the time because I think, feel, or do something incorrect. But God's not like that towards us. We shouldn't be like that towards each other, okay? Now, what, what about this? How does it feel when someone responds to you by telling a story about themselves, right? So they just lost my job. Yeah, man, I know what that's like. Yeah, like three years ago, <laughs> I lost my job too. It was terrible. Like, how does that feel when someone responds that way? Well, okay, it could be received positively. That's true, that's true. But how, how, can, how might it feel like not great, Andrew? Yeah, it's a competition. Uh-huh. Yeah, Chris? It feels like you're linking the person that's listening to what they're going through. Yeah. You're link, like positively or negatively? It kind of feels like it's negatively because you're not being a listener. Yeah, you're not listening. You're really just kind of, now you've just jumped off into your own search situation. And to your point, Eloise, sometimes that can be helpful so that people know that uh, what you're going through. Rhonda? Yeah, it sounds like a person's making it about themselves, right? And it can be. Uh, and, you know, I've met people like this, and that's like, that's all they do in a relationship. You say something, and it's a jumping off point for their own life. And I think if I'm giving them the most charity, it's just because they don't know how else to respond to what you're <laughs> saying, so they just try to relate to it. But if someone's going through a deep time, a struggle, and you make it about yourself, then they may just not want to talk about it anymore, or they may not want to come to you for help anymore, all right? So how, instead of doing those things, how can you actually make somebody feel heard? Good. Yeah, listening intently and ask questions, because if you ask questions, you know that you're listening. Uh, it's it's okay. I'm doing the thing where I'm making it about myself, but now that I started, I just got to tell you. Um, I'll like, Megan will say something and I'll just make a corny joke and she'll be like, babe. And I was like, well, you know, I was listening, right? Because <laughs> the only way I can turn that into a pun is if I was paying attention, right? So, but instead of making jokes, ask questions. What are some other things? What are some other active ways you can show that you're actually listening? Yeah, Raymond. Oh, taking notes, good. I usually, I usually will ask for permission before you do that. Yeah, Hannah. Uh, to to Ooh, nice one. Yeah, so. Ooh, that's really good. Yeah, showing them in the scriptures something that was very similar that happened to it too. Um, I think it's in my notes here, so I'll just. I'll just bring it up real quick. Um, oh, yeah, it's the next one. When you do that, what you're showing is that God knows what they're going through. Because, look, it's in his word. The same situation is happening in his word. Yeah, Andrew. Mm. Yeah, following up with someone really can help someone um, like you were listening. It's like, hey, you know, how's that going? And for many, for some people, that'll come naturally. Like you'll wake up and be like, oh, well, that thing that Andrew told me. Or for some other people, they may need to put a reminder. Remind me on Monday morning to check in on Andrew. 
neither is wrong, right? So if you're, <coughs> if you're the kind of person who will forget, make yourself a note. Yeah. Oh, nice one. Yeah. So if you were to say, hey, can I just pray for you? And you pray for them about that situation, it shows that you were listening as well. Unless your prayer is just way off, right? But so that you may ask some questions before you pray. But when you do pray and it's accurate, it's like, wow, that person really listened to me. Very good. The Psalms help us to see that this isn't easy, right? Godly life is not easy. And the Psalms are really helpful in that. So when you bring people to the Psalms, for example, let's say that they're, um, uh, they're just like, oh, where are you, God? Like, why are you just, why are you not listening to my prayers? Are not the Psalms a great place to take them for that? Because doesn't the psalmist say stuff like that? The psalmist says stuff to God like, are you sleeping, God? Whenever I read that, it makes me a little nervous, but it's in the Bible. And then you see the psalmist work through it so that by the end of the psalm, he says, but God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. So you can help people by bringing them to the scriptures again. And it shows them that God knows what they're going through as well. Um, If you counsel a problem rather than the person, um, that's going to be harmful. Now, let's think through that practically. What might that look like? Rather than counseling the person, you counsel the problem. What might that look like? Andrew. Yeah, good. So sometimes they just, person wants to be heard, uh, have their feelings validated. But if you're just jumping to solutions, for example, because, oh, well, you're anxious. Philippians 4, don't be anxious. You have any questions? All right, have a good day, right? So now you're, you're counseling the problem, not the person, rather than hearing them out. Did what Job's friends did before they messed up. Just listen. Just be there for them, right? Daniel. Yeah, yeah. So Daniel said, sometimes the emotions get in the way of thinking clearly. All of us have experienced that. There are certain thoughts that we've had that's like, why would I ever think that? It's because you're emotional. So it's helping them with their emotions, helping them to get to a peaceful state before you start answering the problem can be really helpful. You know, one example of this is grief. Someone has just lost their spouse. Sometimes they say stuff that's like, that's not biblical. But is that the time to be like, well, actually, actually right? The Bible says it. I don't, that's, you may wait. You may you put a bookmark in your head so that when things are calmer, you can help them think through the situation, right? So don't counsel the problem. Counsel the person. Be like Jesus Christ when he said to us, I will be with you always. When he says I'll be with you, he's not just talking about like physical presence. He's talking about being with you like on your side, like, like being, being with you in your troubles. We can be with each other in that same way. Now, let's take a look at the next part, the beginning of change, the beginning of change. What are some ways that you can build trust with somebody? Some, before you can counsel someone, they got to trust you. So how do you get there? Yeah.
Ooh, that's a really good point. That's very insightful. So the first thing she said was remembering what they said. You bring it up so it shows you're listening. The other thing is don't be a gossip. And Hannah said that uh, if people gossip to her about other people, what's to stop them from gossiping about her to other people, right? So if, you, if you're a gossip, if you're like, hey, did you hear about so-and-so? You're not going to build trust with that person that, you're, that you can confide in, that they can confide in you because you've proven that other people can't confide in you, right? So that's a really good insight. What else? How else do you build trust with somebody? Yeah, your words match your actions. Good. So you're not just, you don't just talk the talk, but you walk the walk. Uh, And people seeing that over time can really help build trust as well. Trust is vital in these life-changing relationships because if people are going to be unwilling to open up to you, then you can't help them. You can't counsel them. So you build trust by being a faithful person over time. Another thing that's, that's vital for change is somebody having hope that God can actually change them. That's a great place to start when you're helping somebody. Show them from the scriptures that God is actually working in them. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He who began a good work in you is going to complete it. Yes, sir. Right. Amen. Great point. Yeah, Julian says we're not fatalists. This is the error that a lot of people take when they think about God being in control is that there's really nothing that we can do, pray, or, or have any impact on history. That's just not the case. God does have already everything in control, but he uses your actions. He uses your prayers for his purposes, right? So we're not fatalists. We realize that we actually do have to pursue this change that God is working in us. But you have to have hope. You have to have hope that God is actually working in you. And you also need to have a commitment to change. If you, are, if you have a friend who wants to meet with you and all they do is just complain and you give them ideas and they just brush them away, then you probably just want have someone who just wants to vent all the time. And they're not really committing to change. That's not really healthy. That's toxic, right? And so you, you need to help them realize you need to commit to change. God is doing it in you, but you also need to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, okay? So someone needs to have a commitment to change. Let's look at this next part, entry gate questions. Entry gate questions. Sorry I'm speaking so fast I can tell we're running a little behind. Entry gate. What are some questions that you can ask to get to the heart of a matter. Yeah, Julian. Yeah, what do you believe about such and such? Or why do you think that happened, right? Good, what else? Yeah, Daniel. I mean, you just said it, why? Yeah, why? Because if you ask a why, then they're gonna give you an interpretive answer. One of the things that we said we need to look out for. Good, yeah, Emmy. Good, yeah. Um, ask if they prayed about it. That kind of helps you see if they've actually been 
working with God in this situation? One of the classic, you know, it's kind of a cliche psychologist question, but it can be helpful in our situation. How does that make you feel, right? Yeah, how does that make you feel? And, and sometimes people will be like, oh, you're, now you're just acting as a shrink. But you could also just, just try to empathize. Like, oh, man, that must have been so frustrating. And either they'll tell you, yeah, it was. Or they'll be like, um, it wasn't really frustration per se. I'm just like, so then they'll tell you what they were actually feeling instead. So these are ways that you can um, ask questions to try to get deeper into the situation, right? And again, you're listening for those things we talked about before. You're listening for uh, emotional words. You're listening for interpretive words, God talk, these kinds of things, right? But in order to hear those things, sometimes you need to ask good questions. Let's take a look at our next part there. Element of love too. So the first element of love was enter the person's world, which is exactly what God did for us in Christ, by the way. Element of love number two is incarnate the love of Christ. Incarnate the love of Christ. Every single one of us has has had people in our lives that have changed our lives for the better. Uh, God uses you in the same way. That's God's intention for you, is to help people change their lives for the better. Um, Ministry needs to be made up of more than just words, okay? Sometimes we think that all we really need to do is speak the truth. We do. We need to speak the truth in love, but ministry is more than just words, right? One of the things that Tripp says in this book is that we're not only God's mouthpieces, but God's evidence. Explain what you think that means. We're not just God's mouthpieces, we're God's evidence. Yeah. Right on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Julian pointed out something we've been talking about, that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Everything that we think, say, and do is an overflow of our heart. So if what you're thinking, saying, and doing is godly, then it's evidence that you have a new heart, that you've been changed. And sometimes that, that evidence can give somebody hope. Wow, I can be like that. And so in order to incarnate the love of Christ, we need to have the next section, the right clothes for the job. The right clothes for the job. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17 says this. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful." Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now there are some things in here that often sometimes people will associate only with, uh, with, with formal ministry, like being a pastor, such as... Uh, 
letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And yet, this isn't written to pastors. This is written to the church. So you also need to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. But with all of that, you need to put on love. You need to put on Christ, right? The, the, this analogy of clothing is, is helpful because in order for us to actually help people, we need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to put on his qualities instead of our, our flesh's qualities. Um, Tripp tells a story I think is really helpful. He was doing marriage counseling and they just started and the husband eventually just got frustrated and he walked out. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. You need, you, if you want to talk to him, that's fine, but I'm done. He left and Paul, David Tripp, walked out and followed him into the parking lot and he said some words to him that I don't remember. Um, but the point is, the man followed him back. And then later on, that man said to him, I don't remember what you said to me in the parking lot, but it was the fact that you went out after me that really softened me to come back in, right? So in that situation, again, it was just his actions, his love and compassion to go after the man that softened his heart to come back. And again, sometimes it's our words that help someone. Sometimes it's our actions. Sometimes it's our love that encourages people. There are three reasons why we should put on these correct clothes that, uh, that Paul highlights for us. It's a protection for you. It's a protection for you. Because you might be in spiritual danger when you're counseling somebody else. Galatians 6.1 says this. Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, right? So putting on the qualities that he mentioned in Colossians 3 is going to help you uh, be protected against being tempted yourself, right? Uh, Our own hearts can be revealed when we're counseling other people. When you're counseling someone and they just don't seem to be progressing, your anger and your impatience can be brought up to light, Uh, the longer you're dealing with someone and they still seem to be doing the same old things over and over again, you can start to lose graciousness with somebody. You just want to hit them upside the head and say, stop it, stop doing that. So your own sin can be revealed and you need to make sure that you're putting on the right clothes. Second, it offers a living example. It offers a living example. If you are living out what you're talking about, if you're showing that change is possible because you yourself have been changed, and that's going to be encouraging to that person as well. And then finally, it gives evidence. That's not, that's not finally, I lied. Three out of four. It gives evidence of what the Lord can do. So same idea here. You're a living example, but it's evidence that God can actually do that in them as well, right? And then finally, number four, it keeps Christ central. It keeps Christ central. When you are entering into a... Uh, into a counseling relationship and you are putting on the qualities of Christ, then what you're doing is you're pointing people to him, not just in your words, but in your actions as well. In that sense, you're keeping Christ central, not you as the counselor, not the other person as the counselee. You're keeping Christ central in your words and in your actions. Amen? All right. Good conversation. Let Let me pray and ask God to help us with these things. Father, we thank you for the love that you have shown us, that steadfast, unconditional, selfless kind of love that you 
have shown us in Christ and you continue to show us. Lord, we have continued to sin against you because of our flesh, and yet you do not treat us as our sins deserve, but you have separated us from them as far as the east is from the west. And further, you, you will not always chide, Lord. You are so kind to us, and we pray that in light of this grace that you have given to us, that you would help us to be that way with each other. In the same way that you pursued us, came after us by giving your only son for us, and having your spirit regenerate us, we pray that we would pursue others with that same kind of selfless fervor. Help us, O God, not to see brothers and sisters who are going through trials as obstacles, but rather as the mission that you've given us to make disciples and to teach them to observe all that you have commanded us. Help us, O God, to be Christ-centered in everything that we say, think, and do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all.